0: Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, listeners. It's time for another wonderful show with Dr. Phil Maffetone, my longtime inspiration And leading expert on endurance training for decades now, finally getting his due and his prominence with his wonderful math approach to endurance training, eliminating the chronically stressful patterns that endurance athletes have succumbed to for so many years. Oh, my goodness. And we are going to talk about the important items of the day, especially the amazing performance of the great Kenyan marathoner, Eluid Kipchoge, who's tiptoeing closer and closer to the 159 barrier, the magic barrier uh, for the marathon world record that Dr. Maffetone predicted in his book, 159, many years ago, and now this guy's almost there. Dr. Maffetone poses some interesting uh, speculation of how to shave uh, incremental time off the existing world record. One of them is that he wishes these marathoners would run barefoot if they could, if they could handle the, uh, the stress because they've been running too long in shoes. But the change from shoes, even lightweight racing flats to barefoot, the saving of weight and the increased efficiency, the increased explosive propulsion off the ground, he thinks will drop the world record down to the bottom very interesting stuff. And it does support the extreme importance of spending a little time or more time, as much time as possible in a barefoot or a barefoot simulated experience, especially if you're an endurance athlete. So I know it's difficult to transition over after a lifetime in constrictive shoes. You have a tremendous amount of atrophy, but hey, it's time to start thinking about it because you will improve your form. You will improve your Uh, Reduce your injury risk. And that's a good time to go plug a free ebook called Amazing Feats about how to transition carefully and successfully over to a more barefoot dominant lifestyle. So go to bradkearns.com, sign up for the email newsletter. The thing will pop up into your face, write your email in, and you will gain access to download this really awesome uh, PDF that was a lot of uh, excerpts and extended material. Uh, that Mark Sisson and I worked on very carefully uh, to help people with the barefoot experience that never made it into any of the books. So time to consume all this. So we talk about the barefoot scene, and then we get into uh, all manner of other training insights. I especially love his uh, suggestions, his recommendations on strength training, that came later in the show. I asked him sort of a personal question like, hey man, I'm trying to you know, lift the heavy weights and put my body under resistance load, but I keep getting sore and it's so frustrating. And he said, indeed, it's a problem uh, if your workouts are making you sore. So he gave some tips and tricks that he calls slow weights, where you go over and throughout the day, you put yourself under a minimal load, not enough to really stress you, but if you add it up, you're going to get really strong. All kinds of great stuff from the former Oracle of Arizona, now living in Florida, Dr. Phil Maffetone. Soak it up. You're going to have fun. Wide-ranging show. Thanks for listening. Well, we'll have to do uh, a whole nother show on on athletics and sport, but I want to finish up by asking you for a few comments because uh, this amazing phenomenon has been taking place in the marathon scene that you predicted uh, a while back. You actually published a book called 159 about the the amazing, possibly uh, distant dream of an athlete breaking two hours for the marathon, which, if you calculate the running pace, is an insane pace per mile that any jogger can associate and just shake their head because uh, we're talking about uh, 439, 438 per mile. And now, in uh, Kipchoge, Kipchoga, uh, one of the greatest distance runners who's ever seen on earth uh the definitely the best marathoner is is knocking on the door he just did a two hundred one thirty nine in berlin in the middle of 2018 what do you think phil uh
1: no surprise uh kipchoge was uh one of the candidates i listed in my book um at the time when i was writing the book uh he had um he had won some big 5k races. He was a great middle distance runner. I mean, I think when he was 18, he, you know, he won, uh, the world championships and beat, um, the Moroccan who was, you know, who had run sub eight minutes for two miles. And so, uh, I, and then I think he, he, he ran his first marathon maybe by the time I was finishing the book. I don't, I don't remember, but he had run um, and won the Hamburg Marathon in Germany, and and was you know ran two hundred five or something. And I just and that was really irrelevant. Although having a positive marathon uh, as your first event is is very helpful because it's such an experience based race. But the fact that he was such a great five k runner and then he moved up intelligently to the marathon made him a one fifty nine candidate in in my book literally um, and so this is no surprise uh i'm I'm a little concerned about him being abused uh because he participated in that uh Nike stunt uh whenever that was uh last year or whenever um, where you know they they had this really it, it was just a stupid event um it was a stunt and it was a it was a marketing campaign and
0: yeah they tried to organize a uh unofficial attempt at Breaking two hours by having the athletes run around, uh, automobile racetrack with pacers and all these things that are illegal and inauthentic to an actual race. And at that point, he ran just over two hours, two hours and 36 seconds or something. So it was all, uh, documented and, uh, branded by Nike. So, uh, the pure runners, you know.
1: Yeah, it was a big, it was a big hoax. And, but, but it continues because he's, you know, this is, this is a problem that I've always, um, talked about. With uh, the athletes I work with, because it was a stress. And uh, how much are you going to let your sponsors dictate? How many public appearances can can a person make around the world in the course of a year? Well, um, if you're you know if you're sponsored by a company and they're paying you money, they want you to appear in as many places around. They don't care how much you travel, um, and and that wears athletes down. And I'm seeing it happen with Kipchoge and, um, um, hopefully, uh, he, you know, he's, he's gonna, uh, recover from that. Uh, and, and of course, you know, breaking the world record in Berlin, uh, just a couple of months ago has got him back on the circuit, um, most likely. And, um, hopefully, you know, he'll, he'll be around a few more years because at, at a, I don't know how old he is. Is he thirty-two?
0: Yeah, thirty-three, something like that.
1: Yeah. So he—he, he, in my eyes, he has not reached his marathon peak yet. And so at this stage, in this countdown to to one fifty-nine, like you know, back in the fifties when Bannister was trying to break four minutes, um, we get closer and closer, and now. We're not talking about big leaps anymore. We're talking about a nudge. Uh, what's going to nudge a runner to one fifty nine? What's going to nudge Kipchoge or or others? Uh, there's there's probably a, a, a number of marathoners who are capable if if they have the right nudge. What's gonna What's going to be the nudge for Kipchoge? I, I think one thing which will never happen. Um, unless he loses his contract with Nike, is that if he just ran the next marathon barefoot, it could nudge him to 159. Well, if
0: you're running on a paved road, I mean, your your argument is that the, the there's less weight on the foot, which is a massive uh, performance variable. There's, there's charts, you can find them on the internet, where if you switch from training shoes to racing flats you can save 11 minutes off your marathon time due to the the 6 less ounces on each foot but i'm wondering like the 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 uh the traction on a paved road is that going to be compromised by barefoot versus a a shoe with a uh, rubber
1: grip on it i i don't think so uh the the bigger question is can he physically do it after all these years of running in shoes he he no doubt grew up running barefoot uh he ran to school and you know those kids didn't, you know, their families didn't have money, and so a lot of them didn't have shoes, and they got their first shoes when they, you know, won a local race um, because the, the shoe companies are all there handing out shoes. Um, and so, you know, can he revert back to barefoot running? I don't know that he runs barefoot at all. He may or he may not – but the barefoot running he did uh, enabled him to run longer and longer distances barefoot, and it enabled him as a young a young person to develop that that spring mechanism, which is really one of the amazing things in the human body, where you you hit the ground and then your your foot takes the gravitational energy from hitting the ground and it absorbs that energy into the foot and the and the leg it's it's stored in the in the the tendons in particular and then the body is able to take that energy and convert it to mechanical energy much like sunlight comes to earth it's it it goes through photosynthesis and humans eat uh those plants, or the the animals that eat the plants, and that energy is continually converted uh, in our bodies. When we're talking about fat burning and sugar burning, um, so in this case, it's gravitational energy that is converted to mechanical energy to propel an athlete to move forward. Now, when you when you become proficient at running barefoot as a young child, when you eventually put shoes on, you're still pretty pretty good at that propulsion um but i th- i think it's enough of a of a of a a benefit that someone like Kipchoge could be with again with the right day like he had in berlin this year um could be propelled to uh 15959 um and there's you know there in, in my book i talked about all kinds of things that that runners could do but but they were still running you know 3 uh two, 204, 204 I don't remember uh, they were still several minutes away and to get several minutes off a world marathoner's time uh, would require a lot of different things well it still requires a lot of different things potentially but it'll it'll only take one or two of them and the the shoe issue is one the other is um, a biomechanical balancing act, I call it, whereby athletes in the course of training have a tremendous amount of wear and tear, even the ones that train properly. And, you know, you go out and run run for two hours on your long Sunday run. That's a lot of wear and tear. You feel it the next day. You feel it by the end of your run. But certainly by the next day, you feel like you've run – for two hours why do you feel it well that's because of the wear and tear on the body and primarily that comes from the muscles the joints are affected the bones the ligaments tend you know all the soft tissue but the muscles are what are affected the most and it's the muscles that have to recover and bring you back to a uh, a good feeling Monday morning or Tuesday morning when you, when you, you know, after you take a day off or whatever. And this wear and tear builds up and having worked with athletes for a long, long time, one of the things I always did was in addition to all the training and nutrition, dietary stuff was to help them, uh, balance their muscles, Right up until race day, right up until the gun goes off, literally sometimes, um, working on these muscles to to fine tune them. Um, it, it, it's like a race car, you know. I mean, if you if you don't tune up the race car's engine, it's not going to run as well. And for years, that you know, race cars were just you know people just had cars and they went to the track. And when then they started realizing, hey, if we uh, if we tune this up so that the air flow is better, or the, the you know the wheels are turning in a particular way, we could take minutes off, you know, a five hundred mile race. Um, and I don't think that has happened yet in sports. There are a number of people who, a number of professionals who do that, but uh, for the most part, it's it's not being done. So I think that's another thing that could nudge him. Because it improves body uh it improves running economy, it can improve running economy significantly.
0: are you talking about a typical massage therapy deep tissue treatment or athletic massage or are there other modalities that are also effective? no
1: I- i'm 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 talking about evaluating this is very individual, so we need to evaluate the individual's gait and posture and then. You know, when you look at someone's gait and you see some irregularity, um, it's because there's muscle imbalance. And uh, assessing muscle imbalance, you can do by visually observing the gait, getting an idea, oh, this is the gluteus medius muscle that's causing that excess tilt to the left more than to the right. And then uh, posture um, is another part of that, and then uh physically evaluating the muscles uh, with manual muscle testing and then when you determine the the cause of muscle imbalance, you can then use biofeedback to correct it and it's 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 not we're not talking about having to lift weights to get stronger we're talking about a neurological phenomenon where um muscles in the in the process of wear and tear, muscles uh, develop imbalance and an imbalanced uh, state is two or more muscles where one is too loose and one is too tight. and that affects the joint, it affects the posture, it affects the gait and over a, the course of a marathon it affects running economies significantly because running at the same, pace as an example with muscle imbalance could raise your heart rate five or six beats Oof! and obviously over a marathon that's that's going to be quite dramatic
0: so if, if we want to go look for a certain type of practitioner that can help us with the muscle balance is this sort of a art person or what kind of things do you support uh the, the people out there doing this kind of work
1: uh good question um there are a lot of uh, practitioners who use manual muscle testing as one of their assessment tools. And it's one of their assessment tools because you have to have the whole package. You have to do a good history. You have to know uh, what questions to ask. You have to evaluate the diet because that affects muscles. Uh, you have to be able to look at the gait. You have to understand sports, et cetera, et cetera. And then... Um, once you assess an imbalance, how you correct it may be related to what your level, what your area of expertise is, but it really doesn't matter. I don't care how you fix muscle imbalance as long as you actually correct it. And so it's the assessment that's really important. And a lot of it is asking around, um, who does uh, muscle testing in their in their office and um, and that's that's a good starting point.
0: Then of course, we have all the dietary improvements we can make, and then with the uh emphasis on aerobic training and avoiding those overly stressful workouts or the pattern of overly stressful workouts, I think we'll start if we're talking to the general audience about how to improve their time. Not that they're worried about breaking two hours, but you can honor these lessons that the, uh, the the elite runners are showing us, the elite athletes in every sport, about how to do it right.
1: Correct, and you know the the elite athletes, the the lead pack, um, they're the only ones improving. Everyone else, from a from a sports standpoint, so all the other marathoners are slowing down now not everyone but you know there are there are age group uh records being broken um, people you know in their short span of of you know getting into the marathon will run a personal best but as a whole um, people are slowing down and they have been for for decades and it's it's really said it it's it's correlated with the increase in Excess body fat, coincidentally, uh, which is no surprise.
0: Well, there's also increased participation uh, in these in these marathon events. Unlike the old days, where only serious runners would dream of of running 26 miles, and now you go to La Marathon, and if you're if you're not entered in it, you'll get funny looks at the Pilates studio or going to the uh, the nearby Whole Foods market. So, I guess it's a positive that people are are going out and, uh, and, and getting onto the starting line rather than seeing a smaller field, but definitely running vastly slower, the average participant or even the, even the number of people that are breaking three hours has declined over time, even as the fields have gotten uh, much bigger.
1: It, it's it's true that it's great to see uh participation um you know continually improve continually going up, but it's not why people have slowed down because when you look at the statistics, when you look at the data, the new participation factor is is considered in in that assessment. And um not not counting those new folks coming in and walking a marathon for example or or jogging and walking and jogging and walking um that has been factored into this issue of people getting slower it's not just in marathons it's it's it, the statistics are including i think including 5 and 10k or 5 or maybe maybe 5k 10k half marathons and marathons if you look at the 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 data um but this, this, you know, this was evident for me in the '80s uh, by by looking at, um, by by taking a good history. Patient would come in. Uh, I would do a long history. Oh, uh, you've been you've been running ten k's. How long How long you've been running? Uh, five years. Okay. Uh, when was your last PR? Oh, three years ago. Um, that was a typical response, and, um, and I, I, I hadn't seen that in the 70s. It, it just you know, was, was evident, and then, and then correlating with the over-fat pandemic was, was a clear observation as well, and now the data of all that stuff is quite clear.
0: So what's going on? Are the training methods inferior, or is it mostly the diet aspect?
1: I I think uh, it's a combination of both. Um, although it, it's it's you know what's more primary. Well, the diet is more primary to the training. So what you do with your diet affects your training. You cannot, as Tim Noakes says, run away from a bad diet. <laughs> um, you can't outrun a bad diet. I love it. Yeah, you. So uh, you know, growing up in the in the running boom.
0: Uh, we thought you
1: could, everybody, you know, I'd be at a part, you know, I mean, I was at, new in practice, so I actually went to parties because I thought, well, I got to get to know people. And, and I go to these, um, you know, running parties and, um, they, they'd see me watching the meet. They'd say, Oh, Oh, you're, you're the guy that doesn't want people to eat sugar. I said, well, yeah, it's cause it's not healthy. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna run it off tomorrow. I'm gonna run an extra mile. And I'd say, well, you're gonna run an extra mile. You're gonna burn more sugar calories, but you're not gonna burn any more fat calories. And then they'd walk away, and you know, I'd I'd make another enemy. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't good for meeting uh, women. You
0: have to. Any good date ends with a, a, a treat at the dessert shop, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like we're um, on to uh, another show in, in the sports realm. Are you okay on your time, Phil?
1: I'm okay with my time. Okay,
0: good. I, I have some questions for you, uh, for some, some common themes that the, the Primal Endurance listeners, readers are, are weighing in on. And one of them, uh, especially of particular interest to me, is as we get advancing in our years, uh, do we need to rethink the basic premise of these endurance goals that are so popular, uh, especially the the landmark distances of the marathon and the Ironman? If you happen to be a triathlete, and is this sort of uh, is this young person's game, and then starts to become inherently unhealthy because we're over forty, or over fifty, or over sixty? What do you think about that?
1: I don't think the age is the factor. I think the health and fitness of the person is the factor. Um, and in fact, the, in, in endurance sports, you know, even 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, triathlon, um, and especially the ultra events, um, Young people need to be careful because they're the ones vulnerable to get hurt because of their age. And as we get into the you know later twenties and into our thirties, like earlier I said, Kipchoge was you know just not quite at his prime yet at age thirty-two, thirty-three. I think I think for a pro marathoner. Um, you could be running your best because your abilities at age thirty six thirty seven thirty eight thirty nine that's where you're hitting your peak um you know it was it was no surprise to see de Castella uh, uh, w- and and i may I may have this reversed uh, win a gold medal in the marathon at age thirty nine and then turn around and break the world record in the marathon at age 40. Um, I worked with Priscilla Welch who who at age 42 won the New York City Marathon women's division. Um, not not a surprise. You know the media it, you know they say, "Well, how do we how does she do that?" And I say, "Well, why why wouldn't she be able to do that at age 42?" And, of course, that doesn't make a good quote, so they go on and ask somebody else, you know, and they print in the paper, well, it's a freak of nature <laughs> right? in that example. But, but we're, we're endurance animals, and we, you know, in a sense, um, different parts of our um, physiology uh, progress and, and hit peaks, not, not a, a, a tight peak, not a sharp peak, but a long peak. So Kipchoge may be at a peak now, but he he could still improve until he's 40 if he chooses to do that. And people are in the same boat. But that doesn't mean when you hit 40, you're, you're over the hill and uh, you can't race anymore. If you're healthy, you can still race. And depending on when you start your marathon training, you could be running a personal best at age 60. Um is it healthy? Uh, it it could be healthy, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't do it in a healthy way. They they develop, um, you know, their knee breaks down. Uh, they get exhausted. Their heart stops. You know, there's some serious problems that people are creating for themselves, and um, they're all preventable things that that are are simply. Uh, poor health, and a lack of proper fitness.
0: So it can be healthy pursuits if you do it correctly. And we've seen the proof that the the, uh, the the aging endurance athlete getting up there to 40, Mark Allen won Hawaii at 38 in his fastest time, and so many great examples. Not all of them freaks of nature, just people that have had a sensible approach and, and built on their their previous success and training. But what about in the explosive sports, Phil? We don't see too many examples of of people carrying on. I know uh Linford Christie won the hundred meter gold medal, so he was the fastest human in the world at the age of 34, which was way older than the typical sprinter in their mid-20s. And we see some guys carrying on in the NFL and the NBA as they get up to 40 still showing that explosiveness. But it doesn't seem as common as there something physiological that's we're, we're going to lose it a little more uh, pronounced when we're getting up uh, after age 30 or some younger benchmark sure
1: there 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 are there are aging factors in in sprinting uh and the people you mention are uh what we call outliers they're they're not they're not you know the norm if you look at a bunch of athletes and and where do they peak in their sprinting ability? Uh, most of them, uh, you know, end you know in the in the mid uh, mid mid twenties. Maybe I don't know what the data looks like these days, but uh, you'll see a few people who are in the late twenties, and you'll see some people who are in the thirties. Um, and uh, they're just outliers, and uh, they are. Uh, maintaining their fitness quite well, without a doubt. Uh, We all get slower, you know, we all start losing muscle by age 30. That's our peak of our muscle mass. And no matter what we do, we start losing some of that. We start losing the neuromuscular uh, ability at that age. So we don't sprint as well. But what we have is the ability to be as fast as our peers at age 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, as we were when we were 18 and 20 years of age. And the nice thing about that is we have this thing called Master's Track and Field, where we we don't have to compete, you know, old, old folks like us don't have to compete against 20 year olds, we compete against people in our age group, and that makes it that makes it a lot of fun. And um, and and that can be a healthy thing as well. So I, I think there's just there's so many opportunities for people to participate in physical activities um, that that they want to participate, that they enjoy participating in. So if you're an old
0: time, uh, jock back in your day, like, like you were a, a track star in college and you want to get back into it or, or continue, uh, competing in some way, shape, or form. Uh, are there some modifications that you would make to the training approach on account of being 50 or 60 or, or whatever?
1: Um, n- not a lot. But yes, um, if 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 you're gonna, you know, if you're if you want to co- compete in the sixty um, age group, for example, or the seventy age group, um, you you've got to be a little careful because you're a little more fragile. Um, you've got to make sure you recover well. That's really a, a big big component. Um, you can't go to the track with a bunch of masters track athletes who are in their forties, which is often what happens. Uh, I've heard that so many times. Oh yeah, I, I, I work out with the masters. Oh, how old are they? Well, most of them in their forties, some are in their fifties and you're in, and you're 65. Um, so you, you've got to individualize it. Um, I think uh, a lot of, you know, when we talk about sprinting, a lot of benefits, um, First of all, you still have to build an aerobic base, and then you put your sprinting ability on top of that, and doing high-intensity interval training is, is how you do that, and you can do that on a track, or you can do it on the road, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, little tricks that are low-stress, quickly to recover from workouts, like uh, running at race pace for seven seconds, uh, and then walking for, you know, until you're recovered, which might, might be 30 seconds or a minute. Um, and doing that twice a week. Uh, you know, we, we so in, 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 in this kind of world where we're, we're trying to do quick things, whether it's tennis and racquetball, um, swimming, you know, short, short distance swimming, um, uh, even golf. You know, you've got explosive activities, and we need to be careful because when we're when we're sixty and seventy, and we're swinging a golf club, we're more vulnerable to little imbalances, those muscle imbalances, as an example, than we than we when we don't recover as well. So we we need to be careful. But um, having a great aerobic system is is a requirement, and then. recovering is important. And the, the, the human body has the ability to run across the street when it starts to lightning outside. And we're, you know, we're, we're, there's nowhere we could hide. Uh, We can't go in a building. So we have to run across the street to go into a building. Well, everyone can do that. Everyone who can walk will be able to, to, to do that um at varying paces. But we have this autonomic nervous system that goes into fight flight mode. And when it does, we can do amazing feats. We have amazing strength. And so we already have that sprinting ability. We could we can get that 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 serve that seems to be so far away from us on the tennis court um easier than you think. But we have to have the foundation, that aerobic system, and then we have to, uh, we have to perform those, those feats, um, in, in, in the course of, uh, of training. But we also have to recover. And in, in people, once, once you get to 50 and above, you're recovering because of muscles, because of the neuromuscular, um, slightly less, uh, uh, proficiency, our recovery takes longer, and we have to we have to let the body recover and if we don't, we get in trouble.
0: What kind of parameters do you recommend to assess whether the the subject is recovered and ready for another explosive workout?
1: Uh, f- people who are experienced and honest with themselves <laughs> can use uh, Wait, experience and honest. Wait, both things at once. What a package! Um, Can use, you know. How do you feel in the morning when you wake up? If you wake up and you just, you know, you touch the floor and you're, oh man, your joints are like, whoa, what's going on? That's not what it's all about. And so, um, if you're feeling that way, you're not, you're not recovered, and you're not going to recover that day, most likely. Um, what I still like to see people do, um, even track and field athletes, even tennis, whoever you are, if, if, if your goal is to measure something that is indicative of improved health and improved fitness, the, the, the whole package, do an MAF test. Because if you're getting slower on your your walk, your ride, your jog at a submax heart rate. However you want to do this MAF test. If you're getting slower, there's a problem. Now you you do slow down over the years, over the decades. Um, but I'm talking about in a relatively short period of time. If you if you're going out, if you're if you're 65 years old, you go out and you you can jog at your um, MAF heart rate, and you can jog at a, a, a nine thirty pace. Um, and then all of a sudden you notice, oh, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm now at 10 minute pace. That's a problem. That's a red flag. And you've got to stop and say, Hey, what am I doing wrong? Because that should not happen.
0: Right. It's either overstress, overtraining, or you're sitting on your butt too much. And, and Declining fitness, but the latter one is so improbable to the the listening audience and the people that are devoted to fitness it's almost always that we're over the edge with uh, some component of life that's not promoting good recovery
1: yeah we, we we have a world of people who are either overtrained or undertrained <laughs> and there there are too few of us in the middle and and that's really sad um, and the overtrained people are are no uh, better off than the under trained people
0: well uh, look at the I heart uh, the heart disease risk factors and the the increased incidence of afib with the, the long term devoted athletes it's almost like uh, a race between the the, uh, the the junk food chomp and video gaming person next door you guys are both blasting your hearts in in uh, mm-hmm. into into illness and disease
1: yeah, I I, I wrote a, a a paper with a sociologist a few years ago on uh, the sociology I, I forgot what it's called. It's the sociology of no pain, no gain. Basically, showing that no pain, no gain is a concept that began uh, many many years ago uh, with Benjamin Franklin, actually, and and not in the sports world, but the sports world has uh, adopted it as 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 you know their own mantra and and if you look at the conditions like that cardiac problem and depression and uh the physical injuries we see about the same prevalence in in the physically active people as we do the inactive people so um uh,
0: oh, so so the person who threw out their back in the in the waiting room and is sitting next to you and you're wearing your sweatsuit and holding your back and they're holding their back and they did it by picking up a two pound bag of flour. And you did it by doing your fifth CrossFit workout in the same
1: week. Yep. Or they, they intended to pick up the two pounds as they were reaching for it, their back went out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look at, you know, and I noticed that in, in, um, in practice early on. And, um, I talked about it often and people would say, you're crazy. And it's, if you just, if you just talk to clinicians um who who look at these things they they know that and and then in recent years um we started seeing studies that that talked about this and i referenced some of them in that article that is on my website
0: now you also mentioned uh you don't want people to be sore after their strength training sessions and i'm personally having a hard time with that here at age 53 and trying to go hit my hexagonal deadlift bar on a regular basis or do other fun stuff in the gym. I'm not super consistent where I'm going in there 3 times a week for an hour. I'm I'm trying to be more intuitive and do these brief explosive workouts, but I'm often finding that uh muscle soreness come up the next day cuz whether I'm my, my approach is flawed or it's just a, a, a function of uh needing needing to tone down the intensity of the workout, I don't know.
1: A good question. Um, this is a, this is a big problem. Uh, we have a very serious epidemic of weakness throughout the world. And I'm not just talking about people who are couch potatoes. I'm talking about runners, for example, endurance, endurance athletes. Um, and, um, And and most people know when they're weak, uh, but if you want to evaluate it, there's a couple of ways of doing it. One is you can get a grip strength um, device where you squeeze. uh, Hand grip reflects um, body strength. So you can get uh, these little grip devices that measure how much power you're able to to grip. And... um, uh, and a lot of people, uh, you know, that 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 shows that they're they're very weak. The other way is to do a jump test, a standing jump test, where you um, you're barefoot, you reach up, uh, you're flat footed, you reach up. Um, you've got to have a high ceiling to do this. You reach up, you you mark the wall, put a piece of tape on it, whatever, and then you have somebody standing on a chair watching to see how much higher you are able to jump above that mark. And it's amazing how, you know, uh, most most endurance athletes can't even get over 12 inches of jump height. <laughs> so you don't need a high
0: ceiling after all.
1: Well, maybe you don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 12 inches. Do you have some benchmarks from, uh, from research that are... Uh... You know, basic objective, exceptional. Any any numbers out there? I know we have the the NBA guys where we're talking about their thirty six inch vertical leap and so forth.
1: Um, I, I have a lot of data on that, yes. Um, but it, it's best to look at you know what happens to say uh, a runner as they age. What happens to a runner? Well, Chogi, okay, um, when he was running five thousand meters and 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 winning um i bet his jump height was was close to to 25 30 inches because
0: that's so funny because the the marathon has long been the dumping ground for the endurance athletes that didn't have enough speed to be competitive at 5 and 10k and now we're looking at the guy who's going to shatter the records and win the gold medals it has this explosive power in his body as well as the ability to handle uh, the endurance regimen, which probably, uh, you know, Wade Van Niekerk probably couldn't do that well as a marathoner, the guy who just broke the the world record in the 400 meters. So at some point you're going to sacrifice your explosiveness is going to be difficult to train into a marathon person. but
1: That's true. That's true. But when when I saw Kipchoge's 5K history, I knew he was, Potentially a great marathoner in the making, if he could just hold on to enough of that um, strength that that is lower body strength and so um, uh, so fast forward to to um, the gym, your workout, your muscle soreness that you develop, when we get sore, the muscle gets weaker. And the, the you know now we we have to look at tradition what does tradition dictate in in weightlifting circles in strength training circles um, tradition dictates that we work out hard we fatigue the muscle which means we get sore and um, and then the muscle recovers and it takes 24 hours actually it takes 72 hours in many cases um, to recover and 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 I I wrote a book an article called The Weakness Window. That period of time, that 24 to 72-hour period after you do strength training, is a window of weakness. Your muscles are weak because uh, you worked out to the point of fatigue, and the muscles got sore, and that soreness, now that whole physiology has to be adapted to, and that's what recovery is all about. And so during that period, what are you going to do physically? Whatever you do physically, if you're going to play golf or if you're going to go for a run, uh, you're vulnerable to get injured because your muscles are weak because you, you did this workout that caused them to weaken. So the answer to the problem is how can we build strength without getting weak muscles, these windows of weakness twice a week, you know, I mean, that that's a problem. Uh, it's also a problem because that approach to strength training also builds muscle bulk. And the last thing you want as an endurance runner is more muscle bulk because your your running economy will get trashed. You, you were talking about ounces before in shoes. You know, you put on a pound or two of muscle mass, which is not difficult to do in a strength training program. <clears throat> what is that going to do to your 10K, your your marathon time? It's gonna it's gonna trash it. Right. Some people. That's why over fat people are are running slower because they're in addition to the excess body fat and all the problems that that creates. There's additional weight there as well. I
0: mean, some people want to put on bulk and put on size and have different goals or aesthetic <laughs> goals or what have you. But I think the the concern there is uh, this this continued soreness. Uh, it, it's, it's not pleasant, it's not enjoyable, uh, and we also have this muscle weakness. So are there some modifications? I know people talk about doing the, the positive aspect of the lift only, where you lift the weight up and then drop it so you're not getting those eccentric contractions that lead to muscle soreness.
1: No, I, I, think, I think first you have to have some clear goals. What, what do you want to do? If you want to look really cool, if that's your goal, you want to look like you're a weightlifter. Well, that's um, my job, Phil. <laughs> I,
0: I have to. <laughs> oh, okay. Wait. Well, we're just doing a podcast. No one's. No one's seeing no us. No one's all right. seeing we can, us. Can, um, okay.
1: Uh, you know that's 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 one thing, and that's a problem. Uh because you, if you do it right, you're still going to look cool. You, you're not going to look as cool because you're not going to build these big muscles. And when I early in my practice. Uh, somehow I, I I know how it happened. I got one bodybuilder, I helped him, he referred a few bodybuilders. they referred a few bodybuilders and all of a sudden, I had all these bodybuilders in my in my clinic, and I really I really didn't like it because they were willing that was the ultimate sport that would be more than willing to sacrifice their health and fitness just to look better. And that's not what I was all about. And so I didn't, and I ended up dismissing all of them because uh, it was it was painful for me to, to work with them. So if we want to be, uh, if we want to have big muscles, um, I, you know, that's another discussion. And, and in most cases, that's not what people want. If you want to look cool, you, could, you can still look cool. So what you want to do is avoid the pain, you want to avoid the fatigue, <clears throat> you want to avoid the soreness. And you can do that by lifting in in short, um, by lifting, and you can do this with one lift, you could do one lift that will give your entire body additional strength. What a deal. And, and not get weak and not get sore. And be able to run the next day, be able to lift. The next day, be able to lift later in the day if you want. And you do that uh, with a uh, a deadlift or a squat, or you're going to lift the weight and you're going to squat, and and you do you do it so that you're able to do five or six squats without getting excessively fatigued. And that amount of weight is about 80% of your one-time lift, your one-time bit So if you can lift 100 pounds one time, that's you can only do it once because it's so much weight for your body. Okay, now you want to take 80 pounds you should be able to lift that eighty pounds five or six times without much stress. If you do that,
0: oh, and then no soreness the following if you do day. That, so there's pick, no
1: soreness the following yeah. day. You're not stressing your muscles. You don't require more than a minute or two of recovery, literally. And here's the bonus: you get strong. Well, think about Olympic weightlifters. Are they big, bulky people? No, they only in the heavyweight only division. Only in the heavyweight division because they don't, Alexia. Yeah, they don't want to move up to the next uh, to the next level because there's more competition there. They want to stay slimmer. They want to stay leaner,
0: and so yeah. Google uh, Google Pocket Hercules, the greatest weightlifter pound for pound of all time. And he, was, he looked like a little gymnast, but he was mm-hmm. uh, lifting you know, as a function of his, his light body weight. He was a very small man, and Nayam Suleimanoglu was one of his names. Different countries kidnapped him and <laughs> changed his name so he could represent them in the next Olympics. It was like Bulgaria and Turkey, but his nickname was Pocket Hercules because he was a Pocket Hercules.
1: Yeah, and and all these stories you hear about, you know, mothers who, who, who you know, they're, they're their child is under the car and stuck, and the mother lifts the car. I mean, how how does that happen? It goes back to the autonomic nervous system we talked about earlier, is that we all have this capability, but how do we translate that to getting stronger without getting sore? And the goal in that kind of a workout, and and this is – this is tied in with biofeedback. When I mentioned biofeedback before, this is how I help athletes get stronger by balancing their muscles. What what we're trying to do is get the brain to contract more muscle fibers within the muscle. When we lift a weight, we lift a certain we we contract a certain amount of muscle fibers. The more we contract, the more weight we lift. But we we never Contract one hundred percent of those fibers. So, if we can tease the brain to gradually enlist more and more fibers to contract in a lift, we will automatically get stronger. And you can make somebody stronger in you know in in two minutes by doing biofeedback on a particular muscle by training, this is how we treat stroke patients and brain injured uh, people is we train the brain to contract more muscle fibers. And it's not, it's not that hard to do. And in strength training, if you do it by your, your 80% of your one-time max lift, you're gonna be in the ballpark. And then, it only takes one lift, so if you if you only wanna do squats, how long does it take to lift a certain amount of weight, lift it up, do six squats, put it down, and walk away. That's your workout. Well, I have something called uh, slow weights. Slow weights is you've got you've got a barbell over there in your living room or in your bedroom or in your kitchen, wherever, and it's sitting there on the floor. And whenever you have a moment, as you're walking by. You pick it up and you do six repeats of whatever, squat, see? And over the course of a day, maybe you do that three, four, five times, six times. Over the course of a week, maybe you do it 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 times. Man, you're going to get, you're going to get strong. And if you're not used to lifting, you're going to, you're not going to bulk up, but you're going to, you're going to look like, you're going to look cool.
0: Oh, and because you're only doing one set at a time, you're not going to get this. You uh, recover completely. This full fatigue scene, like you do coming out of an hour CrossFit, if you're right, exactly. Okay, and so uh, even doing,
1: and yet you're getting, and yet you're getting stronger. And what happens is, as you do this over the the weeks, and you get stronger. You get to your your six reps and you say, "Wow, this is this is too easy." You don't add reps; you add weight. So this is different from the traditional: go to the gym, do twelve reps, do thirteen. Come on, you can do one more. You can get to fifteen. That's trashing your body. You you don't need to do that. In in some sports, you do and in. in you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a linebacker, if you're, you know, if you're on the basketball team and you're, you're 110 pounds, it's going to be really difficult to survive, so you're going to have to put on some weight. But for most people, uh, they don't need to do that. They need to get stronger, though. And, you know, the funny thing is people who put on a lot of bulk are not necessarily stronger. Those those bodybuilders I was talking about, they're all weak. A big muscle is not necessarily strong, and a small muscle is not necessarily weak. You know, we we've all seen the skinny guy, uh, you know, beat up the the big um, muscle guy, in in martial arts or whatever. You know, strength is not. <clears throat> um dependent on muscle size, is dependent on how many fibers you contract, and that's a function how many fibers you contract, which is a function of the brain.
0: Right. So the opposite example of of your description where you're recruiting more fibers to to lift the weight, to to get your nervous system functioning more optimally and, and doing doing the best it can with the existing muscle. Uh, The hypertrophy workout where you tear apart your muscles, you get really sore, you go for a prolonged workout until you're depleting all the glycogen and walk out of there exhausted and then refuel with the giant uh, protein smoothies with plenty of sugar and other crap in there. That's when you (laughs) blow up and get these huge muscles, which we mistakenly believe uh, is more and more strength than the bigger size muscle.
1: Yep, yep and and it's just not true that the bigger muscle is stronger and <clears throat> but but the problem is that we have created an environment that is a horror show and when when you uh injure yourself and you go to a physical therapist and they do some tests and they say you know you're you're pretty weak or you are a runner <clears throat> you want to run a better marathon and you get evaluated and you can't jump more than 11 inches. You're pretty weak, okay? Um, what is that person going to do? They're going to look at the gym environment. They're going to see these big, macho people sweating, looking in the mirror at themselves, lifting weights, men and women, and they're not going to do it. And if you're, if you're not a physically active person to begin with, and you uh, break your hip at age 55, and the therapist says you, you, your muscles are very weak, you have to get stronger, although, otherwise you're going to have another um, fracture. Uh, where are you going to go? You're not going to go to the gym. You're not going to go into that environment. Uh, and so the result is that we, we have this severe epidemic of weak people um many of them are active people many of which are endurance athletes but um it's a it's a serious problem not
0: naming any names but <laughs> <laughs> many of you are endurance <laughs> athletes no offense yeah
1: it's it's a it's a it's a reason w- we could make a good argument to say that the reason for slower times over the decades is because of a trend of weakness that has also occurred. Um, um, You know, that that could be a good theory. It could be a solid theory. But the point is we want to individualize it, and we want to know do you have excess muscle weakness? And if you're trying to run a better 10K or a better trail race, you by doing nothing else uh getting stronger is going to help immensely and and do, you know do the do the standing uh i know that some gyms have equipment where you can stand on a mat and it'll time how long you're in the air and all that stuff. those are great um but you could do it at home um and if you if you can't jump you know more than I don't it depends on your age and and all kinds of things but you know if you're if you're if you can't get well over 12 inches you're you know you need to get stronger and even if you can if you can get to 15 you can still get stronger and it'll reflect in better jumping ability and then you know you're getting stronger and that should uh translate into better race times and and, and not only better race times but better health number one, and better fitness, number two.
0: What a great goal to pair with improving your maximum aerobic function test. So you have that aerobic efficiency where you run around the track. I like to go eight laps, Phil, and and peg my heart rate at my uh, maximum aerobic heart rate and then and then time myself and then to try to improve vertical jump. Or as you know, I'm an enthusiast of the high jump, so I have the, the graphic reminder there of yep, uh, what yep. pegs the bar at. And then each passing year am not getting any younger hopefully the bar is not <laughs> is not lowering at a faster rate than my age is increasing and it's it's possible to to unwind a lot of these things that we consider to be aging just with i mean i'm i'm going to make some modifications to my training schedule to uh, eliminate those incidences of muscle soreness and go by my deadlift bar more frequently during the day and and do uh you know, it, yeah, I do about six reps. So if I can do that three, four, five, six times a day, oh my gosh, that's going to add up to be a tremendous improvement in strength over a very short time without that yep. repercussion of the, the breakdown burnout from these exhausting workouts.
1: Yep, without a doubt. And, and you know, you, you want to use um, intelligence in, in that approach. You want to, um, you know, not get out of bed and go pick up your bar. You want to have have been moving around a while so that you're warmed up or or do a warm up of uh, an active warm up um uh if you're not eating enough protein for example uh it's going to be really difficult to get stronger um you know if you're if you're a, a, a vegan it's not going to be easy uh, i could guarantee you that so <laughs>
0: No, no offense, um, again, uh, you no, no weak <laughs> vegan endurance athlete. Get out there and lift that deadlift bar, man. Go eat some eggs afterward. Yeah. Hey Phil, I appreciate you spending the time. What a great show! So many wonderful insights, and I know you're uh, doing some some cool things over there at the website. So can you give a plug for the new products, uh, the the naturally sourced vitamins, as opposed to the. The 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 uh, the mechanized crap that we see at the big box stores and how to get some.
1: Uh, sure. We're you know we're always putting out new articles every week. Uh, we've got some some uh, bigger projects, um, uh, shortly um, coming out ebooks and stuff. We have a new line of dietary supplements made from real uh, real food, uh, real products that are not dangerous. Um, um, a multiple vitamin mineral product, uh, the B vitamins, all active B vitamins, which I don't think there's a product like that on the market um, right now. Um, natural vitamin C, you know, the synthetic vitamin Cs, um, it, it's well known that they can impair endurance along with uh, the high-dose vitamin E. Um, but,
0: but wait, when we when we buy vitamins at the big box store, everyone says, well, it can't
1: hurt. They can hurt, you know, <laughs> they can hurt, actually. The dangers of Whoa. synthetic vitamins, this, there's a severe problem today with, with I, I have an article, I, it's coming out in the next week or two, um, and it has to do with um, synthetic folic acid, folic acid being the synthetic version of folate, as, as it's found in the active form, which we use in our big complex, but folate, when it gets into the skin and is exposed to light, is a cancer-causing, cancer-promoting substance. And um, of course, everyone listening uh, to the show most likely goes out to exercise, and um, exposing folic acid to to sunlight. Uh, even if it's early in the day or late in the day even artificial light will do it it converts that chemical into something really bad um so the um the the the, the synthetic uh vitamins are found in all processed foods cuz they're they're um uh they're fortified they're found in in energy bars cuz they're fortified with this junk uh these junk vitamins and they're dangerous uh, we also have a vitamin D product, which has vitamin K, the two forms of vitamin K which you need to make vitamin D work. Man, talk about an epidemic. The vitamin D deficiency is its just a problem that is rampant. And the relationship between vitamin D and physical performance is really, really powerful. And if your vitamin D is not at a good level, there's no way you can perform even if you do everything else right.
0: Well, we also have some difference of opinion from what the doctor says is a good level and what Phil Maffetone says. I remember proudly uh reporting some blood values to you and I, I got my vitamin D up to fifty-five, which is way off uh the you know, way above the normal or what your doctor's looking for, and you you um you wanted to see me even higher than that. So when the When the patient comes back from their their annual physical and everything looks normal, but vitamin D is down there at at 31 or something, um, where do you stand on that? And why is there a disparate opinion from um, the the, the normal blood values that are touted as healthy?
1: Well, there's a lag between the scientific evidence and the the recommended levels that you you have in in the, the labs. And so the labs uh want to make sure you're you're not going to be you know you're not going to develop um you know disease um, it's like you know the amount of vitamin C we should eat well uh, you know they base it on developing scurvy. well we don't just want to want to avoid scurvy we we want to have enough nutrient to to be healthy and vitamin d is 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 no different. if we look at what prevents uh skin cancer, how much vitamin D do we need to prevent skin cancer there are There are studies about that, and those numbers are well into the sixties so I, I kind of use that as my minimum I, I like to to have that vitamin D in the sixties and um, um, there's still there are still people walking around in the u s those are the the numbers we're using um who who are down in the teens and even down. Uh, you know, at 12 and 13. And uh, quite often their doctors don't even say anything because they don't know what to say. But this is a serious problem. This is a very, very serious problem.
0: Uh, We have an increased cancer risk, too, uh, from reading the vitamin D solution, Dr. Michael Holick, especially the reproductive cancers. And I think one of the stats was that uh, people of African descent have an 84% increased rate of reproductive cancer. And that's because they're particularly harmed by the, uh, the inability to manufacture vitamin D from sunlight, being that they're living at a disparate latitude from ancestral, equatorial ancestry.
1: Well, it's that and the, and the skin. The darker the skin, the more sunlight we need to get adequate vitamin D. And, and by the way, it, it, it should be obvious, but I, I need to mention it. We get our vitamin D from the sun. That's our best and, and most primary source of vitamin D. Um, we don't get it from junk food. It's, it's fortified in junk food. Um, it's nice to get vitamin D in supplemental form from an animal source, vitamin uh, D from animal foods. Um, there seems to be a genetic requirement for both the, the food source source the best one being from animals and the sunlight, but primarily we get our our vitamin D from sunlight. And if you if you uh, uh, have a low vitamin D and you decide you're going to you know get a nice tan without burning, of course, uh, and then you know a few months later you get your vitamin D checked and it hasn't budged, then you've got a you've got a problem, and you've got to figure that out, or you've got to find a doctor who can help you figure it out. Because sometimes um, to get going, to get your levels to a a a, a, a level where the the sun can now kind of take over, you might have to get an injection of, of fifty thousand or more units of vitamin vitamin D because you're so deficient, your body's resistant against against it, and and we see that this is this is common in people who are over fat because. Increased body fat prevents vitamin D utilization um, from the sun, so this is not, not unusual. Whew.
0: More information at com. You can get your vitamin D. I love the newsletter, too, so sign up for the newsletter. You get something, it seems like once a week, some really thoughtful articles, not just blather and marketing, marketing fodder, but really uh, informative standalone pieces, so you're doing a great job there, Phil. We Appreciate you so much. And thanks for spending time on the show. philmaffetone.com. Go check it out, people.
1: Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it.
0: Hey everyone, to all of our Whole30 friends out there, visit primalkitchen.com forward slash Whole30 for a special gift with purchase on our latest and greatest Whole30 approved items. Remember sauces, dressings, toppings that makes healthy eating exciting. We have a whole collection of Whole30 items that are super delicious, making an elimination diet like Whole30 easy and flavorful. So this is exclusive to special Whole30 friends. Don't miss out on a chance to collect on this
1: awesome Whole30 deal.